Well, amen. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, as we look at first part, this is a two-part message, from the mountain to the valley. Sometimes God calls us to mountains to rest. Sometimes he calls us to mountains to reflect or for a new revelation of himself or of ministry. Sometimes he calls us there for a reaffirmation of what he's already said to us. This is one of the most familiar stories in all the Bible that we're going to look at today is the Mount of Transfiguration. The mountain next week we'll look at the valley. But most of you know that uh, I take several study breaks during the year and I always go to the mountains. I've tried to go to the beach. Uh, I grew up six blocks from the beach. The beach does not appeal to me at all because the beach brings memories of hurricanes and I would really rather not do that. I'd rather be on top of a mountain than at the bottom of a tsunami. So uh, just for me, it's go to the mountains. And, and I always find that God speaks to me in a fresh way in the mountains. I don't know if it's just my mind is trained to think that way or I want to think that way, but uh, when I get in the mountains, I get sermon ideas, I get book ideas, I get ministry ideas. Uh, sometimes the staff hates when I go to the mountains because I come back with about 20 things that I think we ought to be doing, but need that, needless to say, uh, I love to go to the mountains. Some of the greatest moments in the Bible happen on mountains. Ken Jenkins and I were texting not long ago, and he made a statement to me that I'd never really thought about. And uh, because Ken lives in the mountains, he, he said this, Michael, your retreat is here, but your ministry is there. It's a reminder that we're not made to live on mountaintop experiences. Our ministry is in the valley where people are hurting, where there are great needs. Sometimes we'd like to run away from the needs of people, but the reality is we live in a world full of needy people, and we live in a world that needs the presence of Christians in the midst of them. When you think about the mountains, the first one I think about is the ark set on top of a mountain. Then I think about Abraham took Isaac to a mountain, which is, by the way, the same mountain in Jerusalem, and then I think about Elijah on the mountain, and I think about Moses on the mountain. One of the greatest events in human history happened with three eyewitnesses, only three were eyewitnesses to this event. It immediately follows Peter's declaration that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus, six days before the transfiguration, takes his disciples north, even further toward Mount Hermon. And he's, this is where most people believe that he took them. Some people say he went south. He was in the Galilee. He was already there. And then as you read through the Gospels, he's heading toward Jerusalem. He's heading south. So with all likelihood, he, he is in the north uh, when he makes this declaration six days before it happens. So Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what was about 
to happen. So the, the truth is revealed to three. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now this verse does not stand alone, and this verse has been used by liberal theologians to say, see, there are errors in the Bible because that really didn't happen. Well, if they would read their Bible, they would find out that it really did, that there were some who lived and would not see death until the kingdom of God after it has come with power. How was this fulfilled? These three, Peter, James, and John, the curtain was pulled back and they were able to look through the corridor of time into time in the future and ultimately into what would happen in the second coming of Christ and the reality of his reign and his rule and they got a glimpse of it. So they did. They lived to see the resurrection. We'll see that in just a moment. And so in chapter 9 and verse 1, he's specifically speaking to three of them, Peter, James, and John. It always interests me and has interested me for decades that these three are always the guys that get called in to the special meetings, Peter, James, and John. It's never Thomas and Bartholomew. It's never, you know, George the third or it's, it doesn't matter who it is it's always these three they go into the home of Jairus they go on the Mount of Transfiguration they are in the Garden of Gethsemane now in almost every one of those instances one of them blows it one of them blows it I mean they either make the wrong statement or come to the wrong assumption but they get there and they're in these moments because Jesus wants them to remember so that at some point they can share with others what happens in those moments. Here's what I know. God doesn't have favorites, but he does have intimates. God doesn't have favorites. Listen, God doesn't love you any more than he loves me, and God doesn't love me any more than he loves you. But some people just have a desire to be closer to Jesus than others. Everybody has the same opportunity. Everybody does. But there are some people that want to pay the price to get closer to Jesus and to be more intimate with him. And these three would look back at some point in the future on these moments, and these would be high water marks. They would be memorial stones. They would be those moments that every time they would get together, they would talk about them. Remember that time when we were on the Mount of Transfiguration? In fact, decades later, Peter will remember this moment when he's dealing with false teachers who are saying the kingdom of God will never come. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so when Peter is writing this epistle, the we is Peter, James, and John. John refers to it briefly in John chapter 1 and verse 14 when he says, We beheld his glory. Now, they didn't fully understand it at the moment, but after they got back from it and after the resurrection and the ascension, they began to put the pieces of the puzzle together. The transfiguration did four things. It confirmed Peter's confession. It's in your notes. It affirmed Christ was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It revealed the Father's approval. And fourthly, it provided a glimpse into the glory of Christ. The kingdom of Christ is eternal. It is spiritual. And we are to pray according to Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done. Part of what we need to pray is that God's kingdom would come. There are a lot of people strutting around this world today that think that they are kings and monarchs, but there is only one king that's going to be standing at the end. And that's King Jesus. And we need to pray that his kingdom would come. I don't know about you, but in the mess of the world that we live in, I would be fine if he came back today. It would be okay with me. I wouldn't feel like I had missed anything. We are to pray, your kingdom come. Jesus gave these three a glimpse into the kingdom of God coming with power. And so, there's this revelation at this time at the top. Pick up in verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I just want you to underline that little phrase, talking with Jesus, because we're going to look at that in just a moment. We all know that Moses and Elijah were there, but they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Peter never missed an opportunity to miss a moment. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, Rabbi, Hey, Rabbi, forget about Moses and Elijah, these two people that have been dead for thousands of... Forget about them. Hey, I got an idea. I got an idea. You know, sometimes you just can't fix stupid. I mean, you get a chance and an opportunity to be in a moment that only three people in history have had an opportunity to be a chance to have a part of it. And they said, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You could add to that if you use a little sanctified imagination. Lord, if we do this, we'll never have to see a leper again. We won't have to deal with the blind and the lame and the sick. You'll never have to worry about those stupid Pharisees again. We could just all stay right here, sit in a holy huddle, sing Kumbaya, and pick Lent out of our navel. 
it would be glorious. Couldn't we just stay here? Couldn't we just live in this moment? So he speaks up while Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus. For he did not know what to answer, for they were terrified. You know, that's part of our problem. Sometimes when we don't know what to say, we just say something. But God gave us one mouth and two ears. We need to listen twice as much as we speak. Then, to interrupt Peter's interruption, then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one was with them anymore except Jesus alone. Now here's what happens. At this moment in human history, what Jesus was on the inside was revealed on the outside. The glory that he had temporarily laid aside when he came to earth and was born of a virgin now engulfed him again and these disciples got to see what the glorified Jesus would look like. All the glory that was his was manifested on this mountain in his humanity. Now here's what you need to understand when somebody says Jesus is not the only way or when somebody says Yeah, but I'm sure Jesus sinned. If there had been one sin, one, in the life of Jesus, the glory of God would have killed him instantly in that moment. The reason that the glory came on him was to affirm that God had come in flesh to dwell among men and provide a salvation that no one else could provide. God dwelt and heaven acknowledged his sinless humanity. Sometimes God takes us to mountains to show us things, but he never takes us to mountains to show us things just for ourselves. He takes us to mountains to show us things so we can help others. He takes us to mountains so that when we have this life-changing experience, people see him in us. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You see, what people need to see in us is that we are glorifying God. Moses had seen it. Moses had seen the backside of it, of the glory of God. Paul would see it. These three saw it. But listen. When you have a divine encounter with God, it changes you. It shouldn't temporarily change you. It should change you. I don't mean change for a week or a moment. I'm talking about a lifetime of change of something that God did 
in your past or may do today that so radically impacted your life, you never get beyond it. You never forget it. Jesus does not appear to us, speak to us, convict us for us to remain the same. He does it so that we are changed on the inside out, forever changed. We can't shake it. It impacts us. We can't get over it. That's why I believe when you see people that say, oh yeah, I had an experience with Christ when I was 9 or 19, but they don't do anything about that experience, they really didn't have an experience with Christ. They had an experience with religion. They had an emotional stirring. But when you meet Jesus, you can't help but be changed. There are all these people, sadly, best-selling authors and pastors of big churches that in recent years are saying they're not really Christians. They were becoming what we would call apostates. They're saying they're not really Christians. They are walking away from their faith. Listen, you can't walk away from a faith you never had. Because if you have faith in Jesus, he's got you and you got him. And it's, it's not about, well, I just decided I wasn't going to follow him anymore. You never followed him in the first place. You followed a feeling. You followed a group of people that you like to hang around with. You followed an emotion. You followed a moment. But when the squeeze came and you got off the mountain and got in the valley, he wasn't good enough for you. That's a place to question whether a person is really saved. <clears throat> Mark uses this term of transfiguration of a true essential nature that radiantly shows forth on the outside. Now here's what they got a glimpse of. This is good in case you're wondering. You may not be wondering, but it's good anyway. First of all, they learned that the saints in glory are instantly recognizable. They had never met Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah did not show up with a name tag from Office Depot. Hi, my name is Moses. What's your name? Hi, my name is Elijah. They knew who they were the minute they saw them. That means that when we get to heaven, we're not going to be walking around saying, I wonder what Isaiah looks like. You're going to know Isaiah when you see him. You're going to know Paul when you see him. You're going to know John when you see him. You're going to know the saints of old when you see them because our minds are totally renewed at that point. So they were instantly recognizable. Is that good? It ought to be good. I mean, I want to see Jesus, but... I don't want to spend the first three million years going, what's your name? Who are you? When did you live? What did you do? Now, I think one thing will happen in, in heaven. I think some of the Old Testament minor prophets are going to walk up to us and say, how'd you like my book? And we're going to say, I, I didn't ever read it. Hmm. So they were instantly recognizable. Moses and Elijah. I mean, they knew. Peter, James, and John. Jesus didn't say, guys, I'd like you to meet these two guys right here. They're pretty cool guys. You ought to meet them. 
Secondly, they got a picture of the two ways that people get to heaven. They got a picture of the two ways that people get to heaven. Remember, Moses went off on a mountain and died. We don't know where he's buried. Elijah was taken up. So, there's two ways people get to heaven. You die or the rapture. Either way, there's only two ways. You die or the rapture. People don't go to purgatory for a while and then somebody buys them out or prays them out and after hundreds of years they finally get into heaven. You're either in or you're out. You're in or out. This is the way that people get to heaven. By the way, I always used to feel sorry for Moses because Moses didn't get to the promised land. Yeah, he did. He got there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, if you're going to get to the promised land, that's a pretty good way to get there. Hey, Moses, you led those people for 40 years. You made one bad move. I didn't let you go into the promised land, but I got something for you. And you remember... A day in the Lord's courts are like a thousand elsewhere. I mean, it's just, it's just a day. It's like a moment. And then Moses is standing with Jesus on the mountain with Elijah. By the way, he had never met Elijah in this life, but they're standing there together. <laughs> Fourthly, thirdly, whatever. They learned three things about life beyond the grave. Number one, it's intelligent. We're not some cloud floating around in some essence of nothing. It's intelligent. These were Moses and Elijah. It's glorious. It's glorious. It's not just an existence. It's glorious. It's everything that life was intended to be. And it's useful. The Bible says we will serve him there. It's useful. They were ministering to Jesus. They were talking to Jesus. I would have loved to have listened in on that conversation, but Peter kept talking. We don't know what they said. Yeah, I think we do. Why Moses and Elijah? Because God had been with Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 31. God had been with Elijah on Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. I think this was their discussion. Jesus, you fulfilled it all. We are here to affirm. Moses is the lawgiver. Jesus, you have fulfilled the law. Elijah is the prophet. Jesus, you have fulfilled the prophecies. And the next thing Jesus hears is, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus was about to fulfill every aspect of the law and of every messianic prophecy. Jesus was the consummation of every page of the Old Testament in Christ. It was being fulfilled. And so here's Moses and Elijah are speaking to Jesus. And then, if that's not enough, the Father speaks. Now at the baptism, the Spirit descended like a dove and said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now the Father shows up, and this time these three hear it, and he says, do what they say. So let me just give you a little thought right here. 
Stop thinking about what you want to say to Jesus and listen to what Jesus wants to say to you. Stop thinking about what you want to say to Jesus and listen to what he wants to say to you. You know, we rush into his presence with our to-do list and our want list and, and God is some ecclesiastical bellhop that we ring the bell and we want to tell him everything and then we got to go. But you know, sometimes listening requires quiet and it requires time. And you have to turn off the distractions. Now, I'm not in anybody's grill on this, but I can't listen to Christian music. I can't listen to orchestration music. I can't listen to any kind of music if I'm trying to spend time with God because I'll be right in the middle of thinking about the Lord and I go, oh, I really like that song. That, that, and then I start humming that tune and then I just kind of forget about the Lord. You know, good things can become wrong if they get in the way of you listening to the Lord. Even music playing in the background while you're having your quiet time can become a distraction because you quit. God's just about ready to speak. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. Be still. So, look what happens here. God interrupts Peter's suggestion that they start a building campaign. And suddenly Moses and Elijah are gone. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them. There are countless incidents in the Bible, you should do a study on it sometime, where God manifests himself in a cloud. A cloud led Israel in the wilderness. A cloud passed by Moses as God covered him. A cloud fell on the tabernacle. A cloud came over the temple when the sacrifices were made. A cloud was a symbol of the presence of God. It had been hundreds of years since a cloud from heaven had come down on earth. 400 years of silence between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. 400 years, nobody had seen a cloud. And these three were in the cloud with the Son of God. And one of the greatest conversations in human history happened inside a cloud. Look at the trip down. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to speak or relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet... How is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written about him. So Jesus forbids them to talk about what they've just seen. Have you ever noticed how quick we are to send a text message to somebody about anything we've seen? What if God told you, just don't tell anybody for a while? Well, I never tell anybody but my 847 people that follow me on Facebook. That's the only people I tell. I told them to keep it a secret, and they told their friend to keep it a secret, and they told their friend to keep it a secret. Listen, God said, 
Don't talk until you know everything. So here's the, here's the first thing. They only knew in part. They only knew in part. They wouldn't know in full until they had seen the resurrected Christ. Until they had experienced the ascension. Until they had seen the Spirit come down in the day of Pentecost. They only knew in part. Jesus said, don't run ahead of me. Don't get the cart before the horse. They didn't fully grasp what had happened. What does rising from the dead mean? Well, there were instances of that in the Old Testament. Seems to be kind of obvious what rising from the dead means. Dead, no life, no pulse, no brain activity. Dead, come to life. You don't have to be a Greek scholar or a mortician to figure that out. Dead is dead, coming back to life, rising from the grave. Pretty obvious. You see, here's the problem. When we speak without knowing all the facts, it can lead to confusion, not conviction. See, it's one thing to say, you need Jesus who died on the cross for you, but if you don't tell them about the resurrection, you didn't tell them all the facts. If you don't tell them that there's a day when we're going to give an account before God, you haven't told them all the facts. They needed this reminder that the resurrection would make it clear. Their problem was a normal problem for their day because most of the Jewish people had combined the two comings of Christ into one. Okay, he may suffer, but he's going to come. He's going to remove Rome. He's going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to rule in might. Israel's going to be a great power again. He's going to rule forever, and we're not going to be oppressed and in bondage anymore. That's the second time he comes. But you can't have the second until you have the first. He's got to come first as a suffering Savior to die for our sins. Then and only then can he come as a resurrected, glorified Lord to rule and to reign. And so they get into this whole conversation about Elijah. And just to summarize those last few verses without diving in deep, there's some notes there from Wearsby uh, on the note sheet. But just to simplify this, I think, I think Jesus spent a lot of time doing this, just scratching his head. Guys, it's not about Elijah coming. It's about me. Elijah has come. Well, John the Baptist was a type of Elijah, but he wasn't Elijah come back from the dead. John the Baptist came as a forerunner. Elijah will show up in the end times before Christ rules and reigns. And Jesus says simply, guys, it's me you need to be concerned about. So let me ask you a question. Do you need to meet Jesus today? He's pulled you into this room. He's pulled you into this service online. Do, do you need to meet Jesus today? Do you need to have a personal encounter, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you need to acknowledge that you are a sinner 
that needs a Savior, that you need to repent of your sin, not to have an emotional experience, not to be baptized, not to join a church. I'm not asking you to join a church today. I'm asking you to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm inviting you to the one that can change your life, not to have an emotional experience that you'll get over by the time you get to your car. I'm talking about a life-changing experience that you can never get over. It changes you inside and out. Now, all of us are works in progress, but some of us can go back and know, I was on a wide road going in the wrong direction, headed for a Christless hell, and one day I got stopped. And Jesus met me on that wide road and said, if you wanna follow me, it's a narrow road. It will cost you your life. You must take up your cross daily. You must die to yourself. You must give your heart to me. You must repent of your sin. That's the road that you need to be on because when you get on that road, you'll quit looking at the detours and the other options. You know, you get your map out and you say, I want to go here. And say, give you three options. And we always choose the fastest route, don't we? Oh, this one's two and a half minutes faster. Let's go this way. It's not about the fastest route. It's about the best route. And the best road that you can get on is the road that is narrow that leads you to a cross to repent of sin. Let me pray with you if I could. I want to ask you today, if you are here this morning and you need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or if you're watching online, whatever it is, I, I want to ask you to give your heart to Jesus today, to acknowledge that you are a sinner. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. So right where you are, in that seat or wherever you are, that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you want him to be your Lord and your Savior. And then to begin to live for him, day by day, minute by minute, following him, giving your heart daily to him. Now in just a moment, Garrett's going to come and explain how you can go share with somebody at the Next Steps desk about a decision that you've made today. Before he comes, I want to pray. Father, I pray for people that have watched us today. I pray for people that have listened to us today and for people that are in this room that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, that we would walk away from here knowing this. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. He's the sovereign Savior. And we have set aside this time to listen to him. In Jesus' name, amen.